Well, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're continuing this morning our sermon series through the gospel according to John. It's a series that we're calling Believe. And our series is called Believe because belief is at the very heart of John's desire in writing this book. John tells us why he wrote in John chapter 20. We've said this to you several times up to this point. We'll say it several more before we're done. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote. That's the purpose of this book. And that purpose is at the very heart of this morning's text in a, in a very particular way. And so I invite you, if you're able and willing, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for Jesus Christ. We're going to read together from John chapter 6. It's going to begin in verse 22, and we will read through verse 40. John 6, 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had, on, had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this then is the reading of God's holy inspired word. Surely the grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. The word of God endures forever. And may he write its eternal truth upon our souls this day. Amen. You may be seated. You may or may not know this about me, but uh, in high school, I had a brief run as a stage actor. No, it's true. 
My junior year, I got to play the lead role of Harold Hill in The Music Man. That was pretty cool. Uh, my freshman year, I was in a production of The Wizard of Oz, and I was actually a member of the Lollipop Guild. Not as cool. <laughs> Not as cool. Trust me. Freshman year was tough, but we got through it. Probably the most legit moment, at least in my view, though, of my, of my high school acting career was my senior year when our company put on uh, a, a, a presentation of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. And I was cast as Don Pedro, Prince of Aragon, or as I described it to the girls in high school, the Denzel Washington role. Uh, if you've seen the Kenneth Branagh film adaptation, Denzel plays Don Pedro. And when you think about it, obviously, I'm the obvious choice. Um, me and Denzel, it just makes sense. <laughs> but I remember 17 years old, sitting with the text of Shakespeare and just pouring over this text as I was trying to memorize my lines. And I just remember being captured by the way that Shakespeare was able to command English for his purposes as a playwright. Shakespeare has this incredible ability to really capture and describe just the common struggles of the inner life and to put it in a beautiful and profound, um, in a profound way. And probably my favorite line of Shakespeare comes from Macbeth. And he puts these words in the character Macbeth's mouth as he struggles with the hard realities of life. He says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Life's but a, white, a, wait, a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This is an artful way of framing a very common experience of life in a fallen world. Life's hard. Life is difficult, and the day-to-day grind can be very toilsome and wearying and can feel very pointless to us when we're stuck in the middle of it. A less artful way of saying this uh, was in a review of a Chick-fil-A that I saw on social media this week. They reviewed this particular Chick-fil-A location and said, great place, but too cheerful. Life is often terrible. (laughs) Bill Shakespeare, he's not, but he did give five stars, so it wasn't all bad. The point is, life is difficult, and we all know it. Even the things that we love and we long for and we look forward to, things like Chick-fil-A, those things, they, they, they fail us. They're never quite as good as we think they're going to be, and they never last. How many times, think about this, how many times in your life have you zeroed in on something that you really, really wanted? You've set some vision of the good life in front of yourself and you've said, when I get this good thing, when I accomplish this, when I achieve that, when I finally cross over to that thing, then I'll be satisfied. Then life will make sense. Then I'll be able to take a breath. That needed vacation, that long-awaited promotion, that hard-won milestone, only to actually lay hold of it and then to watch it turn to ashes in your hand. I've experienced that, and you probably have too. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe Shakespeare's Macbeth is singing the song of your heart as you came in here this morning. And if so, I've got some great news for you. In this text, Jesus is going to reconstruct our vision of the good life with him at the center. That's our big idea this morning. Jesus is going to reconstruct our vision of the good life with himself 
at the center. Jesus is making a point in these verses about the life that he gives. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, there's two words that are most commonly used for life, bios and zoe, and they each have a slightly different meaning. Bios is, is being alive in a clinical sense, like you are physically alive. Your physical life is your bios. That's, uh, it's the word from which we get our English word biology. Bios is the heart's pumping, the brain synapses are firing, the lungs are moving air through your body. But that's not the word that Jesus uses four times for life in this text. The word that he uses for life is zoe, and zoe is a little bit different. Zoe is a word for a certain quality of life. Zoe is the good life. It's that experience of fullness when you hold your newborn baby for the first time. Or that feeling of fullness when you sit in a cabin overlooking the top of a mountain with a crackling fire and a good book and a tasty beverage and people that you love nearby and you, you take a deep breath and you exhale and you say, now this, this is living. This is the good life. That's Zoe. And that's the life that Jesus wants to hold out to us in him in these verses. Let's look together. Just briefly, uh, a word on the context. You'll remember it was the previous day earlier in chapter 6 that Jesus had fed 5,000 men, probably upwards of 20,000 men, women, and children. He followed that up in the nighttime by walking on water. He literally made a stretch of the Sea of Galilee into a sidewalk for a moment and walked on water to the disciples in a display of his power and rescued them from a fierce storm. And this is the next day. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And in verses 22 through 24, it's sort of a strange construction the way it's translated. But basically what it's saying is the crowds couldn't find Jesus and they managed to find him on the other side of the lake. And they come to him and they say, hey, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus' disciples are kind of like Katie and me when we're trying to get away from our kids and just spend like five minutes of quiet, right? We'll like get them all set up and then like quietly sneak out to the porch. And then immediately 30 seconds later, they're like, Rabbi, how did you get here? The crowds have found Jesus and his disciples again. And Jesus knows exactly why they're there. Yesterday he fed them. Today it's a new day and they are hungry again. And they're standing before him because they want more food from him. And Jesus speaks to them in a very interesting way. Sometimes Jesus speaks in parables. Sometimes he speaks in a way that's difficult to understand. Sometimes he's subtle. Sometimes he's even subversive. But every once in a while, he just goes very direct. And he gives it to you double barrel. And that's what he does here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And we've seen that phrase a couple of times up to this point in John's gospel. In the original language, that is actually amen, amen. Let me just, I know I've said this before. Let me repeat myself just one time for those of you who weren't here. The way this would work is in that day, there would be synagogues that wouldn't have a rabbi who would teach their consistently. And so they would have to rely on itinerant rabbis who would travel around and they would come and they would give lessons from the Torah in the synagogue. And after that person had spoken, he would sit down and everyone in the congregation would turn and look at the elders of the synagogue for them to either bless what he said or not. And if the elders were blessing what the rabbi said, they would say, amen. It's good. It's true. It checks out. And everywhere else you see this amen word, it's transliterated from Hebrew to Aramaic to Greek into English is the word we say after we pray. Everywhere you see this word, amen, it comes after someone has said something, except when Jesus uses it. He uses it to introduce his statement, and he says it twice. He says, amen, amen. And what he's saying is, 
I'm taking away your right to decide how you feel about what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is authoritative. It is binding on you because I'm speaking with authority that supersedes even the rabbis and the scribes. And here's what he says. He speaks to them and he gives them an assessment and an exhortation. First, the assessment, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus says, I need to tell you something important about yourselves. You're not here for what the signs that I have done signify. You're not even really here for the signs themselves. You just want something to eat. You're only here because you want your hunger satiated. And ultimately, you only want me for the things that I can do for you. You're trying to use me as a means for some other end. And in one sense, we we hear that and we say, of course, Jesus, look at these amazing things that you do. Of course we want more of that. Who doesn't want to be friends with a, a hookup on some good fish, right? Who doesn't want to be friends with an incredible baker? Everybody needs a friend like that. Amen? Katie has a, uh, my wife Katie has a very dear friend. She's a member of this church. I won't tell you who it is to protect her from the hungry masses. But she makes these Oreo balls that it's just, it's like a little taste of heaven. The, the sky's open, angels sing. They're just the most delicious thing in the world. She gave us, uh, our family, a bunch for Christmas. And it turns out she didn't give them to the family. She just gave them to me. Because I said, everybody, sorry guys, these are for dad. That's just the way life goes. There's little I wouldn't do for one of these Oreo balls. Everybody wants to have a dear friend who can give you the good food. But Jesus is saying, if you're just here for baked goods, your sights are set way too low. Oh, I didn't just come to give you bread and fish. I came to offer you something far better. And this is so often what we, this is how we want Jesus too. We want Jesus, but we only want him as a means to some other end. We want Jesus, but only as a means to fix what's broken in our marriage. We want Jesus if he can help us work out our financial struggles. We want Jesus to help us deal with the hurt of our past or to sort through the mess of a ravaged relationship. We want Jesus as a means to some other end. And Jesus isn't here to provide merely those things. And so he exhorts them, verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God the Father, has set his seal. Jesus is pointing out a fundamental flaw in these people's vision of the good life. He's saying, you think Zoe, you think life is just having enough to eat. And I'm telling you that it's not. Don't labor for that because it doesn't last. Bread perishes. We know this. We know this really well. We've got, uh, we got four kids. So we go on the Costco run on Monday. We spend 350 bucks. And what happens? It's all gone by Wednesday afternoon, somehow. I have no idea how this happens. Kids come to me Wednesday afternoon, Daddy, I want a snack. We'll go get one of the millions of snacks we got from Costco. Oh, they're all gone. How did you go through 300 squeezy applesauces in two days? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> well, bread perishes. Jesus is saying, don't work for short-term hunger fixes. Instead, work for the food that lasts, food that endures to eternal life. Guys, the fact that perishable things don't last and don't satisfy us, they tell us something about our hearts. 
They tell us that we weren't made to be satisfied with temporal things. You know what C.S. Lewis says about this? Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Oh, you were made to experience another world. You were made for a relationship with the Father. You were made to feed on something eternal and lasting and to experience more sturdy pleasures than anything that this world can offer you. And so Jesus says, Don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. He's saying God has sent and authorized His Son as His agent, His emissary that comes to dispense the eternal bread, to offer that which is truly the good life, the only real life where actual flourishing is found. So run after that. Go hard after that. Spend yourself in pursuit of that. Not for the bread that perishes. This is Jesus' message to the crowd. And the crowd sort of gets it, but they don't get it. We see this as they respond to what Jesus has just said in verse 28. Okay, we're tracking Jesus. Don't work for the bread that perishes. Okay, cool. So what works must we do to be doing the works of God? So it's not for the bread that perishes. So what is it? What's the work we have to do to get this bread, to take hold of this good life that you're telling us about? And Jesus says, okay, this is the work of God. And at this point, we should all sit up a little straighter, lean in, perk our ears up. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Belief in Jesus is the work that God is after. Listen, works are, works are good, but they cannot save you. Obedience that doesn't flow out of faith in Christ is useless. It's worthless to us. Scripture testifies, Old and New Testament throughout. It's worthless because none of our works can come close to meeting God's standard. God calls us to perfection, holiness. We can't measure up to that standard. Romans 14, 23, Paul says, That which does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 is a, is a litany of Old Testament saints who belong to God. Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Gideon, David. Yes, they all did works, but they did them by what? By what? Faith. That's the refrain that comes over and over again in, in Hebrews 11. Faith is the work that God receives the work that he's after. What is faith? Faith is a transfer of your trust. It's transferring your trust from your works, from your resume, from your ability to do life on your own to Jesus and to his works and to his sufficiency for you. Faith is transferring your trust from yourself to the one whom God has sent. Faith is acknowledging that you can't earn God's favor by your works. The only way you get it is to believe in and on Jesus, the one that he sent. And when you believe on him, you receive his righteousness, a better righteousness, what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, one that comes from outside of you. It's credited to you as a gift, and that's your only hope. This is what the the life of faith looks like, the the life that receives the one that God 
has sent. Uh, Ray Ortland is a pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and they founded their church uh, several years ago with a sort of a mantra, a saying that sort of defines their life together in community that I think captures the sort of faith Jesus is talking about here. The mantra goes like this, I'm a complete idiot, my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot, my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. And he explains what he means by this. I'm a complete idiot, first. There's not been a single nanosecond in my entire life where God has looked at me and said, ooh, now that's impressive. I'm a complete idiot, but my future is incredibly bright because Jesus lived the perfect life that I should have lived for me. And he died the guilty death under God's wrath for me, and he calls me to do the only thing that I can do, which is to receive it, receive him with the empty hands of faith. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this because it's all mercy. It's for anybody at all, however big of an idiot you might be. And it can be for you if it's not too far beneath you. And that part's really important. Because believing in the one whom God sends, transferring your trust to Jesus Christ, it will cost you one thing, and that's your pride. To get the righteousness from God that saves you, that alien righteousness of Jesus you have to renounce your self-righteousness. You have to renounce your works that would commend you to God. Flannery O'Connor said, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. That's the good news. The announcement of life with God through the finished work of Christ that we take hold of by faith alone. The whole work of God is to believe in Him whom He has sent. Jesus is not just your bread and fish guy. He is something far better than that. The crowds respond to Jesus' statement by asking for a sign. And at just a cursory reading of this, we can get a little frustrated with the crowds, right? Didn't he just feed 20,000 of you with a Lunchable yesterday? Isn't that what just happened? You want another sign? Well, let's remember in, earlier in chapter 6, in verse 4, it tells us that it was, the, it was the time of Passover. It was a time when the people of Israel would remember their deliverance from slavery, a time when, when through God's servant Moses they were delivered from bondage to slavery in Egypt and they ate the unleavened bread. Which means that in this season, bread is on their mind. But Moses is on their mind too. And in the Hebrew teaching, in the tradition at that point, they said the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do the works that Moses did. And so they're saying, Jesus, we want you to authenticate your authority in order that we might believe in you. We want you to do the things that Moses did. And so, yes, Jesus had just fed 20,000 people yesterday with a Lunchable, but Moses fed 100,000 people in the wilderness. And he did it every day. And he didn't do it with some some Publix white mountain bread. He did it with the heavenly bread, the manna that was sweet as honey to the taste. And they say, what sign are you going to do, Jesus? What's the final thing that you're going to do to substantiate 
your reign, to show us that you are really the new Moses who's going to lead us into the promised land just like Moses did. Give us a sign so that we will believe in you. In verse 32, Jesus, he hits him again with the amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's an authoritative statement for you. Here it is. You've missed the whole meaning of the Passover. Moses was not the one who gave you the bread. That was my Father in heaven. And the true bread of God, verse 33, here's the thing. It's not bread at all. It's a person. It's he who comes down from heaven and gives life, gives zoe to the world. The Father wants to give you the true bread from heaven. And that bread, it's not bread at all. It's me. It's me. The crowd says, sir, give us this bread always. Let's have it. They're still thinking manna. And so Jesus clarifies what he's saying in the most profound way imaginable. He makes the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel. These are statements that are recognized in the latter section of John's gospel that Jesus gives seven rich metaphors that Jesus offers to help the people and us understand who he is and why he came. And so he says, I am the light of the world, chapters 8 and 9. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. I am the true vine, chapter 15. And right here in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. It's not about manna. It's about me. Jesus wants to reveal something amazing, something life-changing about himself in the verses that follow. I want us to see three attributes of the kind of Savior that Jesus is in verses 35 through 50. First, we see that Jesus is an all-satisfying Savior. Let's read verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus promises satisfaction at the level of our souls to all who believe in him. Jesus says, I am the only answer to that deep longing in the human heart. And it's only by placing me at the highest place in your affections that that deep longing in your soul can be satisfied. And every one of us, every human being who's drawing breath today is seeking something as their Zoe, as their life. Everyone has a vision for the good life in front of them, and it becomes the north star of their life. Everything that we do moves us toward that thing that we believe will satisfy us. And because of sin, our desires have been corrupted, and so we seek counterfeit versions of the Zoe, the life that Jesus offers us. We seek it in our idols. We say, if I can just get the satisfaction that comes from this earthly, perishable, temporary thing, then I'll be happy, then my life will be complete. And in our frailty, we work ourselves to death trying to take hold of the good life through our idols, a life that is just simply not available to us. So we idolize comfort, and we sprint away from pain, and we will look to anything and everything that will promise to take away our anxiety. We idolize the approval of others, and we cultivate online personas. 
We're willing to compromise our convictions for the sake of people's opinion of us. We go along to get along because the thing we want most of all is the approval of men and women. And the Bible calls that the fear of man. We idolize sexual fulfillment. We will sacrifice our marriage vows, worshiping night in and night out at the altar of internet pornography. We will squander untold amounts of money trying to build the perfect house, the perfect wardrobe, the perfect family photo, the perfect persona. And those things will not deliver on their promises. Food is the perfect metaphor for this. Jesus is so wise to explain this in this way. You can eat, you can experience a great meal, and it will give you momentary satisfaction, but it will not last. In a month, it'll be Thanksgiving time. You will feast on Thanksgiving Day. Some of you will make deals with God on Thanksgiving night, but you will never eat again. You had so much at the feast on Thanksgiving Day. But what are you going to do on Black Friday? You're going to be hungry again. Trying to get from, one, from an idol what you can only get from Jesus is exhausting. It will enslave you. It will use you up. It will chew you up and spit you out. And Jesus says, don't labor for those things. Don't labor for the bread that perishes. There's food that I'm offering to you today that endures to eternal life. There's abundant life, abundant zoe found in me. Only Jesus can satisfy those deep longings of the soul, those desires to belong, to be safe. Our souls are made to be satisfied in Him, and only in Him will we find it. John Newton said in his hymn, Glorious things of thee are spoken. Fading are the worldlings' pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures None but Zion's children know. So to what or to whom are you looking for satisfaction today? Is it a person, a spouse, a child, a relationship? Is it a thing? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the all-satisfying answer to the longing of your soul. How does he satisfy us? He is an all-satisfying Savior, but second, He is an all-competent Savior. He's all-competent. Let's read 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is a fact. This is a certainty of history. Everyone that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Him and will be received by Him. If the Father draws you through the Son, He will never cast you out because He is all competent. He is absolutely able to do everything that He purposes to do. What God wants done gets done. Amen? Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is the all-competent Savior. Everyone whom the Father draws, Jesus will save 
and keep. You and I can't do that. We can try to save ourselves. We can try to paper over the sin and the brokenness of our hearts, but it's futile. You might be able to make some incremental progress of self-improvement. You can, you can white-knuckle your way to improving an aspect of your personality, but you can't overcome your sin. You just can't. It's too great. I was thinking about this last night, and I was trying to come up with a, an illustration of this, and I texted my wife, and I said, Katie, what's an example of something that we try our best to keep up with, but ultimately it's just, there's too much of it, it's just futile. And she immediately texted back, keeping up with laundry in a six-person household. (laughs) As soon as you think you can see the plastic on the bottom of the basket, there's another tidal wave of clothes coming at you. Our sin is like this, but it's far, far worse. You cannot deal with your sin problem. You are not competent to do it. This is an interesting thing. It's the Passover season, as I said a moment ago, and the Jews are on their way to Jerusalem for the feast. But before they go to Jerusalem for the feast, you know what they do? Their tradition would be to get all the leaven out of their house. The leaven represents sin, and so according to the tradition, they would get it all out of their house as much as they could to remind them of the importance of of striving for holiness, of getting the sin out of your house. And what's the problem that they faced every Passover? You can't get all the leaven out of your house. You can't get all the sin out of your life. You're not competent to do it. And Jesus is saying to them, you're trying to get the sin out of your life, and you can't. I'm the only one who is sufficient. I'm the only one who is competent to deal with your sin problem. And here's his promise to you. Once you come to me, once I have saved you, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And there's nothing that can snatch you out of his hand because I am competent to save and keep everyone that the Father gives to me, even terrorists like Saul of Tarsus, adulterers and murderers like David, drunkards like Noah, liars like Jacob, womanizers like Solomon, cowards like Peter, doubters like Thomas, and people like you and me too. All saved by Jesus because he is the all-competent Savior who shed his blood for them and for you and for me. And when our hope is in him, that's the song Jesus, the the song that the Father sings over us that we we sang this morning. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never No, never forsake. What are you trusting in for salvation? The fact that you try to be a good person? The fact that you can line up 10 people who are worse sinners than you? You cannot be good enough. You are not competent to satisfy the demands of God's law, but Jesus is. He is the all-competent Savior. And third, Jesus is the all-satisfying Savior. He is the all-competent Savior, and He is the life-giving Savior. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus gives eternal life, and He raises everyone the Father draws. This is the sure and steady future hope of the gospel. God is working in his world now. This world that he made good, but is bent and corrupted 
by sin. He is making it new again in preparation for all who trust in him to eternal life and will receive that perfected world as a gift in the resurrection. Nothing is lost to the saving and keeping power of our all-competent Savior. Death looks like that loss, but it's not. It's not. Whatever you're experiencing now, however hard your experience of life in a fallen world might be, because of the the resurrection, we know it's only for a season. All the sad things are becoming untrue because you and I were created for a world with no death, no sorrow, no tears, no goodbyes, no separation from the Lord who made us for himself. And that's the life, that's the Zoe that Jesus secures eternally and certainly for everyone the Father draws. And if you are in this life-giving Savior, that's your future. Resurrection. Full healing. Peace. The life that you've always wanted is coming. And so no matter how hard or how beautiful your experience of this life is in the here and now, the promise of God to you is this. Your best life is yet to come. Ephesians 2 says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What that means is it's going to take the coming age. It's going to take eternity future for God to unfold for us just how rich his grace is toward us. That's amazing. That's the life that Jesus invites us to experience. That's Zoe. He is the life-giving Savior. So how do we respond to this Jesus? How do we respond to the bread of life? Three ways, very briefly. First, as verse 40 says, we look on the Son. That word for look, it means contemplate and consider. That's John's purpose in writing this book. He wants you to consider the evidence of John's gospel. Look at these trustworthy accounts of who Jesus was. The Bible does not call you to blind faith in something fanciful. It says, look, we saw him, and this is who he is. So that you can look on that evidence and see him. Second, believe on the Son. Believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the work of God. That's what he asks of you today. Renounce your claims of authority on your own life. Believe that his promises are true, even for you. And finally, third, come to the Son. Come to Him. There must be a response. It's not enough to just know the facts about who He is or even to believe that those facts are true. You must come to Him to receive the satisfying grace that He gives to you. Bring the mess of your inner life. Bring your disappointments. Bring your sexual brokenness. Bring your pain and your regret and your shame and your sin and let Him give you the life that is truly life. Stop laboring for bread that perishes and cannot satisfy your soul. 
And so Jesus says to us through the prophet Isaiah, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Will you have the bread of life today? Will you receive the true Zoe that is freely offered to you in Christ? The work of God is to believe on the one whom he has sent. Believe on Christ afresh today. Let's pray.